0: Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Elizabeth Osder is one of those digital media veterans whose entire career has spanned the entire web era from bringing the New York Times online, although she did get her native New Jersey online first by launching nj.com a few years before all the way through her continued work with any number of digital media companies through her consultancy, the Osder Group. In between, she has some amazing stories about working at Yahoo, launching the earliest of multimedia websites for people like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and the fallout of the dot-com bubble. Please enjoy this great conversation with Elizabeth Osder. Elizabeth Oster, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast.
1: So nice to be here today. Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, I, I can't resist because this is really an interesting story. <laughs> um, but let's begin with, uh, back in 1974, hmm. in some capacity, yes, you were the first girl to legally be allowed to play in Little League?
1: Yes, yes. I'll give you the quick, the sure. quick rundown on that. First of all, those were the years of Title IX right. and a lot of... Uh, women's movement actions and I had a very interesting experience because I wasn't the kid who went to court I was the first legal player so I was the beneficiary of a legal action that took place in the state of New Jersey and a young woman who never actually got to play because hmm. she aged out so um, I had a very unique experience in that in that you know you always think of these stories like that, that there was some there was a big fight and then there's the hero moment or you think of the bad news bears and you know there are right. these, these metaphors for me it was a simple gift of somebody not saying no for something I wanted to do in my life at that point. It was the grace of the fact that the law changed mm-hmm. and all of a sudden when I was aging in at nine, I could go to the tryouts that spring with every like everybody else, like my brothers had before me, and get a chance to play and get on that team. And I always look back at that moment for the great grace in just having said yes you can. no one had to say yes you can. Nobody had to say you couldn't. I just got to do it as a result of that. And then I was the first girl, so it was I got quite a lot of media attention, which contributed to my career. Um, I was on the front page of the New York Daily News, mm-hmm. which was the largest circulating paper in the U.S. at the time, under the headline, Guys are Playing with Dolls. Mm-hmm. and um, I saw my picture in the paper, mm-hmm. and uh, that probably led me to, to love photography and to later become a photojournalist. And so there are many things that happen when things happen to you as a kid that define the rest of your life. And I loved baseball, and I'm still very close to my teammates today uh, on Facebook. And um, I had a different experience than you'd think. But what I take in my life now for anything in gender issues with women or diversity, all those things, there's so much noise out there. You've got to fight for a right. But when you can say yes to a kid or to somebody to do something that they just want to do based on the fact that they're passionate about it and it's what they want to do and not say no because... You're a girl, or you're this, or you're that, and the other. You know, that's that's quite a beautiful thing, and mm-hmm. um, so that's how I look at that experience.
0: Well, you uh, you grew up in New Jersey, right?
1: I did. I'm a Jersey girl.
0: Uh, and I so your your mother was a, a graphic designer. Did that also contribute to your maybe interest in media?
1: Yeah, I think you know being around design it was production, so you were making stuff. I had two interests. I was interested in media production, making things, books. Um, writing, I would build all kinds of things, and she had a lot of supplies. But we're
0: talking about like tangible, you're, you're mentioning supplies, like this isn't like oh she's designing on a computer, this No, is... no, no, no,
1: let's roll back the clock, you know, it's like, <laughs> the, the, like, like the, the screen is getting blurry and we're going back in time, and things are moving slowly, and you know, it's a little, it's on film, and here I am, little, my nickname was Bitsy Osder, and um, I'm sitting beside my mother at her drawing table, and, and I'm making uh, little balls out of rubber cement, as she's um, putting, um, putting down lettering on a page and mm-hmm. building mechanicals which were the boards for something that went to press. Mm-hmm. And I'm going with her to the print shop and sitting there like as she's working with the print shop and we're seeing it come off the press and I'm smelling the ink. And I'm, I'm getting a sense of that you're, you, you make something. And those processes around making things, I think, are a lot of, um, I don't know, what's changed in the world now? The processes are different. They were physical. You had to wait, something had to dry. Mm. you know something had you had to line up all the materials and um, that's really the difference I think between the world of the 19th century production process and the digital era today that's the fundamental thing that shifted the
0: tactile part of it yeah yeah Yeah.
1: but um, you know there was a lot of good stuff involved with that you could throw the you could throw the little rubber balls at your brother (laughs) you could you know those good things you can make all you know if you made a paper airplane or you're building a little house or something you had all these you had great tape and things and so we had a lot of good supplies around the house
0: So you, um, that leads you to becoming a photojournalist. Is that what you went to school for?
1: Well, I mean, um, people's careers evolve over time. I think what's interesting is the themes that happen. The passion photography came then, and I was always known as a photographer. So if I went through... You know, high school and college, I was always the photo editor. I was, always had a camera. I always had to have a dark room. I was always had my hands in the back to the old days in the developer and the stop bath and the fixer under the red light in a dark room by myself making things. And um, so um, I actually got out of college. I went to Mount Holyoke College and I studied history. Mm. And that's one of the reasons I love being here because I think history is really, really important. Mm-hmm. And though it's a short time, there's a very important history to the world of the internet. Um, and I always did photography, I knew it was what I wanted to do, but eventually after a short career when I got a college in political fundraising and also the production, I actually ran printing presses and did some other interesting things, I helped form America's first telemarketing union and mm. things you do at, at a college, it was the 80s, we were activists, it's now going to be the 2016 through 18 and I think everybody's going to be an activist again, it's going to be very familiar. but. Um, yeah, so I, um, I went back to school to the University of Missouri to get a master's degree in photojournalism with the hopes of pursuing that career. And the great gift of that was that's where I discovered the internet.
0: So many people, and this is important for the context, but um, so many people in the 90s uh, on the show have said, and, and obviously some of us remember, your first, the, the only way that you could have access to the internet for a long time was at a college, at an institution. There were you know things like AOL existed and Prodigy existed, but that wasn't really the internet. So this is a long way of me getting to uh, describe for me your your first uh, my first time with with the internet. (laughs) Yes, yes.
1: Well, actually, it was it was it was it was a bit of a saga because I went to graduate school and I actually started out at Indiana University in the journalism school there. And um, they had some rocking computers. They had Next computers, which was the company Steve Jobs went to found when he uh, left Apple for a period of time. And they were just like the most amazing machines. And they had the internet. So you know, we had a computer lab with network computing and um, email. And there wasn't any place to go, but you could do a lot with that. Um, I actually ended up transferring to the University of Missouri because I wanted their photo program. I decided, and. Um, there wasn't any internet at the University of Missouri, <laughs> <laughs> so I discovered it in Indiana. And I was from New Jersey, so I was driving my old Toyota around these Midwestern schools, you know. And um, so anyway, I loved the internet when I got there, and then I got to Missouri and it wasn't there. And it was mind-boggling to me. Mm. And so I had to go out and route around the school and find the library where there were computers and begin to piece that together. I'd also bought a computer in Indiana, so I had my own my own setup. So I had my 2400, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. modem and, 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 and so forth. So... Uh, My first experience was um, just being on the internet, being able to telnet and move around. And as somebody who loved information and data, the ability to move data around. I mean, two great stories I love is, is I got to Missouri and I had a friend there who I'd known in college and I explained the concept of email to her. and She didn't understand it. Nobody understood it. So I went to the library with her and I said, okay, you know, we gonna do this. I'm going to send an email, okay, whatever that is. So then I went to another building on the other side of campus and we got it there. And I said <laughs> like, well, it just, you know, so we sent it from building A and now we're going to walk to building B and we're going to get it. And it's just like, well, how to get there? Mm-hmm. And so there was just no situational awareness to the world that was going to come in the majority of people. Um, so at Missouri, you know, eventually I found my way to um, doing those things. and. Um, you, there was no network then so when you think about the inter, the internet the supposition for it is that it's a networked environment so really what you had was a digital environment with you know short hauls to specific functions to a server or something mm-hmm. or, or there and so um... we actually did some great projects when i was in school um, with digitizing media i did actually um, uh, Podcast sort, sort of style stuff with mm. um, stories behind stories, interviews with the great photojournalists. Well, this is like also
0: that. the the CD-ROM era, right? I yeah. Think, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So you pr- producing uh, multimedia, genre, multimedia but, yeah. CD-ROMs. Yeah. So that was mm-hmm. So
1: you you couldn't it wasn't networked, but you could take a package and you could you could co- combine audio, video, photos, and text, and you can cr- you could create um, environments and stories. And so the the theme was a lot about the story behind the story in terms uh-huh. of great journalism. Um, so well, that's, that's, that's really how I started playing with computers. And then one of the reasons I went to Missouri is they had something called a Kodak D6, which was a 40-pound backpack and a big Nikon camera, and it allowed you to take six digital photographs <laughs> so you could get it back on time. So
0: uh-huh. <laughs> well, you know, that's a theme that has come up again in, in these interviews. Uh, um, the people that were working in multimedia um, in the early 90s when the web comes along, they've already got these skills that they're just like, oh, well, we'll just transition over to this medium right. now because this is all applicable. Like, even things like um, uh, Voyager, like mm-hmm. the, the big company here in New yeah.
1: York. Oh, yeah, I remember I, I spent a lot of time at Voyager. Well, when that, I first and that my
0: seeded so many of the people that went on to start the companies that were Silicon Alley and things like that. Right. So, so, that sense that um, it's sort of like people were training in these skills and then the web comes along and You're ready to go, people like you. Yeah,
1: in in many ways, that that is the history, you know. And and people should look always today for, you know, what are you doing now? It's it's ultimately with jobs, it's your transferable skills. Mm -hmm. So I had started to pivot away from the photography and start learning this multimedia stuff. So what could I do with that? Um, You know, there's a long story there, but what happened with me is I went on a fellowship to a place called the Pointer Institute, um, and they had never heard of the internet, but it was the think tank for the future of journalism. One of the many think tanks for the future of journalism that's still thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And um, and um, I actually told them about the internet, and I got a chance to work there to put them on the o- online. It was with a um, Galacticom BBS mm-hmm. uh, with a um, there was a graphics package. I can't remember the name of it, which you could have buttons and things like that. But I actually worked with them to build their first online service in 1992. And as part of that, we were working with the Raleigh News and Observer, which was one of the early adopters for newspapers online that was venturing um, – re- there was skunk works at different chains. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually was up in Raleigh to learn how to use their Galacticom BBS, and I used to lead what was it? It was, it was bulletin board magazine, there was a BBS magazine, mm-hmm. and that's where mm-hmm. you get all your information and things like that. But I went there and that was actually, you know, the first time I saw the World Wide Web, which was the Little Hammer Olympics.
0: Oh, Um, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That
1: was the first time you saw it. It was the first time I experienced uh, what I'd call networked um, hyperlinks, so the ability to annotate text and to move three-dimensionally was something you would do in CD-ROMs. In multimedia you could navigate space, there's a sense of information architecture of uh, taking a taxonomy and kind of making it 3D, but then you were actually to able to do something that was different which was uh, to do it with almost live things far away and to pull assets from other places and that became, that immediately made the light bulb go off in my hand. The sense that you know, you could travel the world without leaving your seat. Telnet did that for me in some respect which is like a Telnet to a computer in North Carolina or France and look for some data in a library which was a sense of that you could transcend time and space right. within, you know, from your living room which was incredibly exciting. I mean, it was a high that I could experience alone in my, you know, my apartment in Indiana that nobody could understand, you know? And because I was a history nerd and a data nerd, I would do it. I'd telnet around and like look for document citations on other computers just for the sense of getting in. So, I don't so part of me feels like you you want to hear this. I feel sort of boring, but this is like am you know, these are wonderful moments.
0: This is what the uh, the show is, is best at, is <laughs> remembering these, these, these tiny anecdotes that paint the picture. But, um, okay, here's another thing that I love, the, these tiny anecdotes, that if you're 24, 25, fresh out of college in the early 90s, just almost, it's this moment in time where just by virtue of, oh, you're young, then you probably get this new stuff. Mm-hmm. And I feel like looking at your career that, that you were a part of this beautiful moment because, coming right out of school you you're going into things like the new york times which we'll get to i, I yeah, don't yeah, want to yeah. jump around but um the, the sense that just by virtue of being young you can get these great jobs right out of school yeah, because well, you're going to train there's, these there's people. a hell of a story there okay and that's
1: a real story for everybody which is first of all i was i was a little older because I'd gone, to, I'd, you know i was um had gone back to graduate school a little later but i am um, you know i always joke that i went from an unemployed photojournalist, the truth is is i wasn 't the best photojournalist. I was going to be an editor. I, I just you know I just love pictures, and I kind of thought you know this is this is something new. I got a, maybe a better shot when you used to apply for a job, uh, an internship when there were newspapers around this country you 'd start with an internship and you 'd build a career through a, a, a trade a network of trade craft that would bring you up to, through your career, which just, just doesn 't exist anymore it 's heartbreaking. And um, I didn't have a great shot at getting those jobs, given where my portfolio was in shooting. Mm. And also, I wasn't shooting as well, because I was spending all the time playing on computers. So um, I, you know, I went to school, um, an unemployed photojournalist who wanted to try to find a job. And I came out of school the world's leading authority about what news would be online, <laughs> which was very bizarre. Which I would, um, and, and how I did it was by building networks, just like you would do now today on LinkedIn or anything else. I found that the only people that had email addresses were people like, you know, the head of the Wall Street Journal right. doing this, or the head of the advanced Publications, very prominent people. So I'd find their email addresses and I'd be like, hey, I've just done this project at Pointer. like I'm looking for a job, and the world would roll out. And um, the, the funny story for me is, is, so I'm getting out of graduate school, and um, I get a bunch of opportunities. The first one was to be the editor of the, the managing editor or the general manager of the Gate, which was the San Francisco Chronicle's mm-hmm. uh, paper. And if I'd gone to San Francisco in two thousand in, in nineteen ninety three, I think a whole world would have opened up in a different direction. Mm-hmm. Life is life. My father had passed away, and I needed to come home to mm. take care of family business. And so I came home and I um, got offered the first job at the Wall Street Journal Interactive. So I could here I am coming out of school, getting a job. At the San Francisco Chronicle, a major metro daily at this weird thing they're doing, the Wall Street Journal, and then the third job offer I got was from something called uh, Newhouse House Newspapers, New Media, which was a skunk works in Jersey City looking at what the Internet could be for the New House pro- advanced publications, at the time Condé Nast, Random House, um, and the third largest newspaper chain, and um, that's was weird. Uh, there was nothing going on in Manhattan with any of this, but mm. there was something going on in Jersey City and in South Jersey at the Wall Street Journal, because there was nothing going on in the city yet. Mm. Um, and the new houses were experimenting with the MIT Media Lab in some projects to learn about this new thing, and they had created a, something called the India Journal, which was an information service for South Asian Indians that lived in Jersey City. We could go into an Indian deli and they could push a big red button and they could get cricket scores from India. So we are building a information, a mm-hmm. sort of test information service for them. So my interview with them for that job was I drove in my old Toyota. I drove back from the Midwest and I, I went down and I was talking with them in this ratty building in Journal Square and um, the phone rang. It was a real phone, like phone rang. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Remember that. Yeah. We're talking ancient yeah. history here. And we needed to go down to a deli. So I went with Jeff Jarvis, who's very prominent today and very well-known, I went with him and a guy named Kevin Cook, and I sat on the sticky floor of an Indian grocery chain which, you know, while Kevin fixed the duplex printer that these reports would come out of. Yeah. And, and it was just an amazing thing. And so I'm sitting here going, well, I can't move to San Francisco because I have to help my family. That would be kind of where I would want to go because I want an adventure. I have responsibilities, and now I can go to the Wall Street Journal, and this guy, Neil Buddy, was amazing, offering me this job, and it was pretty cool. Or I just thought, like, this is really weird. Like, how often do you, like, roll out a sticky floor? And I went to the Englewood Public Library, and I looked up the company in a book, and I realized what they owned, mm. that they owned. I mean, I remember, I went to the library to find out what they owned, because you couldn't find it online then. Right, right. And I was like... I don't know. This could be big. So I took the I took the road less traveled. I took the job with. It wasn't a brand because I wasn't going to the newspaper. It was just. Let's, I took a. I joined a posse of people to figure some stuff out.
0: And that that's what became Advanced Digital. Yeah, it is that now. Yeah, okay. It was
1: yeah, and it was uh, that was a lot, you know many iterations forward.
0: So. So uh, at this job, um, is this is where. NJ.com yes. starts from? Yes, or, we, okay. we
1: started... MJ.com uh, was one of the products we launched.
0: So what is that? Um, and I always ask in the sense that um, on day one when it launched, if I'm a news consumer and I go to NJ.com, um, what what are you providing me? Is it just the existing news from the print edition that day? Or? And
1: we shovelware. I mean, primarily that was... There are two things that are going on. I think there's there's more of a story there, if you would indulge me. Yeah, please. Which is... Um, First of all, you have to roll, you know, again, back in time, there was the internet, but there was nothing on it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay, so it's great that it's there, but now there's, you know, now you you didn't need Google because there was nothing there. That's why you had Yahoo that could make a list. As Mm -hmm. things got there, you just added it to the list. Um, So what the vision was, was really these platforms as a distribution vehicle, a way of delivering the news and information, the reporting that was delivered online. They were primary thought of to deliver that information, so it basically was what they call lovingly shovelware. Mm. You take what's in the paper and you allow it to be digitized and available to people through a browser. And we had to figure out user experience, which wasn't called that, but you had to design it. And mm-hmm. actually, one of the great designers I worked with had been at um, doing the CD-ROMs for Newsweek, which was one of the few projects in New York, and to build those designs and make it happen. And so. Um, It was um, sort of unremarkable. What was remarkable was the vision to break away from your brands and say for the Newark Star-Ledger that it's going to be NewJersey.com. We actually did a partnership with Philly.com at the time. The Inquirer was a very fine newspaper. The Star-Ledger was a very fine newspaper. And we brought them together and tried to create a regional news service. So the idea was to start by putting what you had in the papers online but then the, the idea was to build an information service around it and that's where the fun really began and that's really what I excel at
0: but let me underline um, it's we talked about before on the show uh, that the newspapers have been experimenting with digital as a delivery method going back to the late oh, 70s sure. early 80s like Knight Ritter did a lot of this stuff um, but it was always about just it being a different delivery mechanism about Eliminating the, the the team of trucks that have to go out and right. deliver the paper physically. They weren't thinking at least at the beginning of like a new medium. It was primarily about this new delivery system. I
1: think that the I think that C D ROMs and what Voyager did quite honestly in mm-hmm. terms of people's vision had a picture of what you could do in this medium. You didn't have the bandwidth for it. So I think there was an an absolute magical, authentic moment of creativity that was being unleashed that some of the smartest people I know in the news business and are the people from the SIAA and the news, so the information services business, which was, this was a consumer delivery of what was the information services business, mm, mm-hmm. Nexus, Lexus, and things like that. Right. But from the moment these things started, people were saying, we can do more with this. We can serve new needs. We can deliver different stuff. Um, we can tell different kinds of stories. And that's where my work really took off. I was actually never really involved in shuffleware. in all my career. I was always I was the skunk works within the establishment. That was my role, and I kept pushing to the next place where I could play play more outside of that. So to go back to Advance, we launched New Jersey Online, but we also did. Um, I would produce packages that were kind of like little CD-ROMs. Like uh, we did a roadside tour of New Jersey, a diner tour. Um, you would do um, fun facts, uh, things to do with, you know, you start developing these packages that were much more rich,ery lifestyle-driven that would hold the chance to bring in new consumers and new audiences, and then hopefully eventually the pressure wasn't on to monetize at those days. So it was, a, it was purely experimental. It was a wonderful lab where you could learn about engagement. And you didn't have a lot of, you didn't have a lot of metrics. We had to invent the metrics. Uh, We didn't have a sense to understand behavior. It was very driven by our own creativity. The world's very much flipped now, where it's driven by consumer insights and really deriving a lot of things, and design thinking and empathy and all of those, it's all about the user, it's all about the user. We didn't know who they were, so we kind of were doing what we thought worked, and then we'd see how well it went, and then we'd try something else.
0: Well, and also because... There were no users. There, there's no <laughs> there's no template, and there's no para, existing paradigm. You know, there aren't things like CMSs. No. So, like, you're, you're basically just given carte blanche to figure out what works yeah. and run in that direction.
1: Right, and so it was... If you think about it, you know, the people that were going into this stuff were slightly feral. We were all the ones who, you know, you know, there are two point of view with a job, I think, as I got older, which is you either make a job or you fill a job. Everybody who was doing this was making a job, and I've always continued to make a job and not fill a job. And we had to make up what it was. We had to have ideas. And there were other projects there uh, that were really fun were something called the Yuckiest Site on the Internet, mm. which was the first science content for kids on the internet there was no educational content on the internet yet and it was uh, started out we would do partnerships with places and communities so we did a partnership with the Liberty Science Center with a woman named Betty the Bug Lady who used to get on to um, uh, David Letterman show a lot Mm. and bring her Cockroach collection and we worked with Betty the Bug Lady and we developed the yuckiest site on the internet and the the first chapter of the yuckiest site on the internet was Cockroach World and you know Making that site was so much fun with my designer friend. The logo was spectacular, and it was done with you know Paul Mitchell shampoo on a scanner painted on
2: mm-hmm.
1: And um, in order to make the cockroaches a little, we, we, brought, we, we brought dead cockroaches back and we scanned them on, so we had this real tactile, very depthful you know, scans of cockroaches. And it was fun. And we hired illustrators and we started telling stories. And there wasn't anything like that. That piece I was you know, we were in Newsweek. It was Cool Sight of the Day, mm-hmm. which was a whole trend then. Many cool sites of the day, but that was in Newsweek and some other places it got real play. Mm-hmm. So those were those were the kinds of things that we got to do there. And and um Yeah, I could tell you one other story sure. from that because I think these are these are important projects I think in terms of when there was nothing and mm-hmm. then there was something and then all the things you did to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, so, really, transformational in my career was um, I started going around to the Newhouse newspapers and working with them to try to find what, what I call today, I call them learning curve projects. So you'd have to go to a publisher and you'd have to say, you'd get, have to get their buy-in. There were guild issues. People didn't want, you know, you, you, were, you were allowed to come in from corporate and do a project. So everything was sort of very strange, but, you know, you had to go to a publisher and you wanted to show them a magic trick, something that they would get behind supporting this. So we were sent out as small little evangelists to the communities, to the the newspapers. So I worked very closely with Cleveland. And I remember I had a set of, they were my magic tricks. Basically, the first thing you would do if you wanted to capture somebody's attention was you would, you know, you'd bring your, you'd find a computer and you'd dial in and you'd find a way to find them on the internet. If they weren't there, you'd put them before you went. (laughs) Because if you could show somebody that they're there, then yeah. they would get interested. Right. And so that was my that was my skunk works technique to get the, the publishers buy in. But we did a partnership in Cleveland for the opening of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and I think this is oops, this is a, um, I think a great story. Um, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was um, <coughs> opening that year in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. Cleveland ninety ha- yeah, four. Yeah, yeah. Cleveland was having a resurgence. Uh-huh. And so we went out to Cleveland, and we thought, let's—we went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I went with a publisher, and I met them, and they didn't know what the Internet was, and they were trying to work with, like, one TV display or something like that. You know, it was just objects and museums and cases. So we told them about this thing. We said, hey, we'll build you a site, rockhall.com. So we built rockhall.com. I worked with a local design agency, and we— We did a lot of things with it, but there was audio on it, there were songs on it, there were interviews, so there was, you know, tenants of multimedia, things that I produced. But there was also um, a game mechanic, and that game mechanic was um, a… Um, wasn 't really more of a game again it was a discussion board really more but it, it you were looking for something to engage people like a game mm-hmm. that 's how you would talk about it you know actually that that 's an old phrase for me, not a new one gamification yeah yeah, yeah. and um because it made sense it 's like how do you get people to really play with this? do you right. make a game out of it just like you make a game out of you know a, you know the surprise inside you know mm-hmm. these are mm-hmm. good marketing terms but um Anyway, so the gamification, there was this discussion of what were the top 500, a debate about the top 500 songs that would make in rock and roll history. Mm-hmm. So we put up these discussion boards and um, it went wild. Well, I was at the rock and roll opening. It was great fun. I did live reporting. I had a 12-picture you know, camera and a, you know, my, my friend and I, we, we interviewed people and uploaded the stories to mm-hmm. the site. But uh, and it was a huge weekend, it was spectacular, I, mean, it was, I, was, I was a reporter, I was photographing, I was writing, I was uploading, I was a multimedia journalist <laughs> in 1994, and I had built the site, yeah. and it was a, a massive event, the opening of the yeah. Rock and Roll of Fame. So I get back and then on uh, the following Sunday, I, anyway, anyway, I get back and the Sunday of that that event I can't get home and I don't read the New York Times that week because I was in Cleveland but um, on I get home and somebody says you know did you see the New York Times they had had done a full page a full page in the Week in Review about a place called the Internet (laughs) where there was a discussion going on and a debate between people who were not in the same place Mm -hmm. in this online space discussing the top 500 songs and rock and roll, and there was a full page of quotes from it. Mm-hmm. So they dedicated a full page in the New York Times to this thing that I had just been working on, and so that was a massive moment for me. It was like, holy cow, I'm mm-hmm. made. You know, this is good. as you say, like things would happen to you, but then it got better because Monday I went to my office and the phone rang, and it was Kevin McKenna from the New York Times saying, "Did we understand you did this work? Would you like? To, we need to launch a website. Would you like to come and talk to us and maybe, you know, about what how what what you've done and." We'd like to learn from you. So I, you know, take a day off work and I go meet with them. Mm. And um, here I had turned down the Wall Street Journal, you know, 12 months before and was crying about not going to San Francisco. And, um, well, they made me an offer I couldn't refuse. And (laughs) before I knew it, I was working for the New York Times trying to figure out what their website was going to be.
0: Well, so your, your title was, according to your LinkedIn, uh, content development editor yes so d- did you know what that entailed did they know what that entailed?
1: <laughs> like, well it's funny I've always made my own titles up and I think that there's been a couple that I've had that were um, kind of where things are going that was and that was when people said the word the word content hadn't become even ugly yet which was debated for many years in the late late 90s the early 2000s content oh a terrible term mm-hmm. content mm-hmm. um I had been doing content development. I made up the title, Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't want to go. We had a huge team of producers that were involved in capturing the daily newspaper online as it was, the shovelware. My job was to develop new content for them, to find new ways of storytelling, as you call it today, and Mm -hmm. open up new channels. And so that's, again, where I had the fun there, which is, and they're terrific people who were producers who were involved in that. The only thing that really broke from the regular... News was as they would publish uh, three times a day and uh, we had somebody who would do updates of the news throughout the day it was a big drama. could you update this throughout the day Would it be okay
0: let me uh, let me dial this back just a little bit mm-hmm. uh, I actually um, Martin Nissenholtz has been on on the show yeah. and we've talked about this this launching of getting the mm-hmm. New York Times online but I, I want you to uh, tell- I will, uh, yeah we probably a very different yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, you know, Ex- perspectives. That's why you're as here. As the foxhole. So, um, as I understand it, um, the New York Times had a pre-existing relationship with AOL. AOL, Okay, yep. so they had, had some, some form of, of a site on AOL. Yep. Um, when you get there, um, and they've made you this offer you can't refuse, what is it that they're trying to do, and what are you steering them towards doing?
1: Well, there was the AOL site. And quite honestly, a lot of really good work, just like CD-ROMS was done on AOL sites. There was a lot of capabilities there that you didn't have on the World Wide Web, like uplinks live to the space shuttle and things mm-hmm, like that. Mm-hmm. So the AOL folks had a lot of great experience. But I was there explicit At the minute, they made a decision that they needed to be an HT, you know, a right. dot com mm-hmm. And so I was there to work on that dot com team. And there was a select group of people from the newspaper that had come over, to lead that initiative. Martin was hired as the leader, which was odd because he was from the outside, but then his lieutenants were all very insiders at the time, and then I was kind of another outsider that, that, that came in. Um, I think at the time it was you know six months of just trying to figure out how to get everything built and technology, um, but again, I was to the side. There was Cyber Times that was um, trying to report on the Internet. That mm-hmm. was a special section. And I was given the other stuff to do. So the other stuff for me at launch was uh, the discussion forums. So the sense of community and how that would work. And I ran that. I started and ran that for a number of years. And these were very controversial. I mean, it wasn't good for a newspaper that you know wasn't sure whether they wanted to do it.
0: So the, the, go into that a little bit. There, there's pushback from who? Uh,
1: well, there's pushback. I like to tell the story of the launch from this. When it launched, it was like a postage, uh, like a picture of the front of the New York Times. It was very controlled with the font. It was very, it was a GIF. Mm -hmm. It was one picture that was laid out in art and put up there. And then the GIF was mapped to the URLs, to the stories. It was very, uh, very rigid, very to the times, very true to brand. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, some of the fun, and, and it was kind of strange to us who had been building literally scrolling different kinds of things it was restrictive it actually we were kind of upset those of us who had a little bit of experience mm-hmm. and um you know because it
0: wasn't going far enough
1: it wasn't going far enough but it, it wasn't really useful because mm. they didn't <laughs> so if you go back then just to you know to be inside baseball like if you don't have a reference if you don't have reference tags for the image to, if, if the image doesn't load what do you get right so like knowing to do that yeah and to have there are links in beautiful Times font, but to have a, uh, an alternative for text navigation. Mm-hmm. So actually uh, one of the things I was really proud about, and you know it's forgotten no one would care that this guy will Tacey And I were like, you know you guys are like really need, we, we, need, we need alt tags and we need to put text navigation if it doesn't load. Mm-hmm. And if you had been actually building and making stuff, that was the most important thing. You were getting a sense of the user that you had to have some empathy for them. If the graphic doesn't load because you're operating in mm-hmm. 2400 mode, you've you got to have something that works. So text loads first. And so we got, like the night before the launch, we actually got them to do that. Mm-hmm. And, but it was, like anything at times, it took a really long time. Um, so, you know, I did the forums. I did a whole lot of different kinds of special projects when I was there. But the forums were probably the ones that I was. Um, uh, most interested in, I guess, as I look back, most f- affected my career and where I would go and what I learned.
0: Um, okay, when I interrupted you, you were mentioning that uh, early on, they're, they're publishing three times a day.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, some guy comes in and like loads new content or whatever. Yeah. Um, are you there long enough to see the evolution of, well, wait, uh, this is a 24-7 medium maybe we can actually break news online? No,
1: no, no. I was long gone. That, things move slowly. I, yeah. I, I, I'll i tell you the story of, uh, you know, I think that would have been a, a much later generation. It was fairly controlled at mm-hmm. that point. Um, and there really weren't any competitors forcing anybody to do it. You have to remember that the times at that point before there were, you know, uh, the stature of a newspaper like that, you know, it was a big debate to, to change the format factor. I mean, it was... I always used to laugh, like the page one meeting was 18 white guys sitting around trying to figure out what to put in the upper right-hand corner of the newspaper. I right, mean, right. it was like, it was a very, it was fairly formal. In well, I
0: remember when it was big news that the Times had a color photo
1: well that was that happened that did happen before I left, and a matter of fact, one of the reasons why they didn't care about the internet site was is the entire company was moving to bring that those color presses online at the same time, so that was the major investment at the time mm-hmm. the color presses and it was a huge day when the Times went color and it was sort of like you know <laughs> you know we were very much an afterthought that was the major investment in the company at the time
0: so so two questions about that um, number one, is it also like your, what your experience was with uh, nj.com where you have a certain amount of freedom cuz they're not paying attention to you that you can experiment Yeah. Or, yeah.
1: Yeah, when the yeah, when, when yeah, and I had a particular job where people weren't looking too closely at it. What was the content development? Editor? And I was essentially the business development person. So if anybody came with an idea or a partnership, you know, I had, I had to vet them, figure out what you could do with them. So I worked with the guys from um, uh, Steve Johnson and uh, from, from Feed Magazine, mm-hmm, those guys. Stephanie we, Simon. Stephanie yep. Simon. So I, did, I don't know if you've talked to them. They're awesome. Her, yes. But we did a partnership with them. Mm-hmm. So I worked with them to produce a, a, a microsite for them that we produced together. I hadn't thought of that in years. Um, and so those kinds of projects but I'll tell you a good story about the forum which I think can Mm -hmm. show you the mindset of the time Mm -hmm. so there was a um a 10-part series called the downsizing of America Mm -hmm. which is kind of Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. everything old is new again Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's why we have to study our history out there usually (laughs) all of you listening yeah um and uh, it was one of those big, you know, every paper has sort of, they line up their guns to win the Pulitzer every day, and uh-huh. they do their big investigative point. They put a lot of resources against it. And this very fine journalism, and, and it preoccupies things quite a lot. So the Downsizing America was rolling out in a series of nine or ten parts. And one of the things that we fought for was to actually have a compendium of comments. So here I'd done this you know, these comments on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame that got me the job, but then to try to stand up the same kind of thing. I had probably had to work for almost my first nine months to stand, you know, to get to stand the same kind of thing up because it was so alien to the culture. But we convinced them that it would be good to put in the newspaper a little thing, you know, if you'd like to comment on this, go to the, go to this URL and you can do it. And, um, so we did that. And so the stories ran and the bulletin boards began to fill up with all this great stuff. But unlike when they were looking at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, nobody really cared. Mm. So I would read these things lovingly every day. Mm-hmm. And I'd print out the best of them and I'd put a highlighter across them. And I felt like I would I'd walk down. We were in the Hippodrome building and I would walk down to the newsroom in, you know, down on 43rd Street and... You kind of walk around the newsroom and go like, does anybody care what the audience is? <laughs> hear, hear, anybody care what your readers are saying? Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. And nobody cared. In my, I felt, I was. it's what I cared about. Yeah. I was a young kid, you know, uh, youthful exuberance. I cared. It was the most important thing to right. me. But the most, uh, for all the things, and there are many projects I did at the New York Times, my simple proudest moment was in the second to last piece of that story. They went back and did follow-up reporting with one person from those discussion boards. Mm-hmm. And that the actual form factor of that story—that was their Pulitzer attempt for that year—was mm-hmm. impacted. The actual story that was printed was impacted by some discussion that happened online, and there was the dots were connected between the two. And it is lost to anybody but me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's evidence historically of just how slow things were moving, how alien these things were, and what you would, how you had to be dogged for a real win at an institution like that. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you were today, you know, everybody is sort of. You know, if you're if you're going rogue or you're doing a startup or something, you can just do anything you want. But if you're choosing, to, you only had a choice to do at those institutions, and you had to you you had to just be dogged. You had to have them say no a hundred times before they would say yes, and you had to be happy with the thing that you got to do.
0: Because an institution like that uh, sees a new idea, goes out and hires the young hotshot to, to bring those ideas in. But then, when you're actually there and you're executing those ideas, they've already forgotten about you. Is that? Yeah, I think that's the...
1: that's probably to you know maybe I was a bit of a pain in the neck. I don't know, <laughs> <laughs> but um, but they all you know listen, there's a shiny object syndrome in every and so, You know, I, I had a really good run there. Uh, you know, the other thing I did there. Um, which is, the, that was on my editorial, is I actually switched jobs. I became the first um, director of product development. And there had been nobody with the title of product development in the media industry at all. I, again, like content development editor, mm-hmm. made it up. Changed my title to product, you know, product management, didn't exist anywhere. And we formed, there was a lot of problems. Things couldn't get done. So I started a product group. I wrote a big proposal to Martin asking for this. And I got three people. I got an engineer, I got a cross-functional team, a product manager, an engineer and a designer, and we were able to and we actually sat between the business and the ad side mm. and I called it Geneva, Switzerland, the, the neutral land between right where we would take all the projects that would come in that they didn't fit anywhere to do there was mm. no place to develop technology would develop the technology but there was nobody to essentially define the requirements projects
0: to, like, projects like what?
1: Well, the biggest one to start out was was the uh nineteen ninety eight redesign of the time the site from that original postage stamp uh-huh. to the scrolling uh hypertext driven site so it was eighteen sections it was you know fifteen months section by section, each one done as a separate business plan and you know it was waterfall in that sense you did your um, you, you did your market and product requirements and then you 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 rolled it out but so we we redesigned the site uh from soup to nuts and that was Occupied the second part of my career there very, very much, and I was I personally was proud of the fact that I I made this thing up called product <laughs> by researching how things happened at design agencies which we used a few of and in software development you know you just kind of learned about how other people did things and you realized we didn't have a way of doing it so we needed to develop a methodology or process and product management really took hold and I spent a lot of the what I call my rock star years of the 90s. Uh, running around evangelizing that concept to see all the product people everywhere now, the chief product officers and all of those things I feel like in some small way I I laid a foundation for that and that's one thing I am particularly proud of. It's lost, Uh, there are many reasons why it came about but I was the one, I was the only person with that title and I was the one who was going around you know I was was a young woman, I was at the New York Times and they let me go around and kind of evangelize things and I, I feel somehow I I advanced that discipline which was a way of figuring out how to put a group together that knew how to build the right way for the Internet in the middle of companies that were manufacturing processes for other kinds of goods. Mm-hmm. So.
0: Um, before we leave the Times, and you might not have been uh, privy to these sorts of things, but... Um, what's their what's their thinking and what's the discussion in terms of monetizing especially because this is what you will continue to spend your career solving yeah. the problem <laughs> um uh what what was the times thinking they would eventually do to make what they're doing online pay
1: well first of all, I think you know you talked to the right person in martin who was you know in many ways you know he, he, he we vented the you know vented internet advertising mm-hmm. for for or better for worse and it was it needed to happen i think um there was an idea that you would have a seller, and we had our first salespeople who would go out and sell packages. We just didn't have a way of delivering it. I think it actually might have been really interesting at the time if I thought about what I'm doing now. Mm-hmm. If I think go back, if, if, if you take the current context for what I was doing now, I was Times T Studio. Mm. I was, um, yeah, yeah. I was basically the content marketing. You know, I was looking for. I wasn't. I, it could have very well been sponsored. There wasn't. It wasn't exactly sacrosanct, mm-hmm. some of the content I was doing. I wasn't exercising big journalism muscles. I was trying to do things that would attract new audiences. Um, so I think that sort of the, the studio content model is what that was. Um, I wasn't much in it because the strict ad-edit wall, I was clearly on the ad- editorial side, and when I went to the product team, it was a neutral space between. But um, ad products were... Um, You know they were being they you know they were establishing a rate card and selling pretty form formulaically Mm -hmm. uh, where we did some more interesting things i think were with partnerships and business development doing projects with microsoft and other kinds of businesses that um, well they may not have been money sometimes there might have been money uh, you know there would have been deeper projects i don't remember how much monetization but there was certainly distribution attached to it which is if you Mm -hmm. could work with Microsoft IE 5, five, then you could get distribution, so I was doing more things that would have resulted in audience development, mm-hmm. and um, I think and, and, and that plays out today, which is audience development is everything, so mm-hmm. I was really early in that space.
0: This might be uh, out of order chronologically, but I read that um, Jeff Bezos tried to recruit you at one point to be like a creative director or editorial oh, director. God, I don't even Amazon. know where that's written anywhere yet. Yeah, that yeah. was my...
1: Uh, yeah that was so that was there were a couple of interesting meetings that I remember now. The uh-huh. first the first great meeting was 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 uh, the, it wasn't great at the time but I still had it it was Elon Musk uh-huh. who's still in my cell phone under his company Zip2.
0: Zip2, right. You know,
1: so so meeting with so him. So
0: that's, that's pre um PayPal. Oh, Elon pre-paypal. Musk. Yeah, 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 yeah. Zip2 when yeah. he was just getting out of the University of exactly. Pennsylvania.
1: And then um the other one was Jeff Bezos who it's another great story what projects at the time which mm-hmm. is uh Jeff Bezos came to tell us about his giant Amazonian book idea mm-hmm. and what he was going to do, and I was working with, we were doing one of the special things I was doing, I was working with IBM to produce the New York Times Book Review Online, and I mm-hmm. have a great story about that, okay. actually, I, I will tell you, because sure. it's, it's fun, it's yeah. funny and fun, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and it shows you what what things are like. but. Um, yeah, so I, I met him then, and, and he contacted me afterwards, and I flew to Seattle and met with a bunch of people, and he was offering me the job of a creative director mm-hmm. for what was going to be Amazon.com, and I said, no, I said, I'm building the New York Times book review with <laughs> IBM, I'm right, not going right. to Seattle for right. this. So, you know, these things go, th- come and go, It's it, mm-hmm. it it was a moment, I remember the conversations really well, I remember... Wanting to be excited about it, but they're golden handcuffs. When, where I was a little bit rogue when I started, I kind of like I'll just go sit on the sticky floor of the deli. Mm-hmm. I think at some point you're at the New York Times, you want to mm-hmm. do something great that's of that brand, and it's kind of golden handcuffs. And leaving there was a hard thing to do, but uh, that was a great um, project. I will, I don't know if it ever launched, but I will tell you a pr- you know how do we figure out how to do things. So, yeah. so IBM is a formidable company with a great deal of resources, going through some extremely interesting transformations now. But at the time, um, it was run by you know program managers, uh, had a strict process, the way they did things, and um, the New York Times book review was run by a wonderful editor named Becky mm-hmm. Sinclair, who was a woman who knew her literature and was fun and interesting. So I would sit in this room with this guy, Mike, and this woman, Becky, to talk about, well, what would the book review be online? How could we do that? We'd sit in this little conference room. And days would go by and nothing would happen. And it was like, it was just surreal until I kept seeing this guy, I kept looking at his palm. And it was just weird. She'd just go on, yeah, a bit creative, on about things. It was great fun. We could do this. It could fly, you know, all this creative vision. It's awesome. Brilliant freaking mind. Mm-hmm. There's nothing more sublime than a great editor mm-hmm. really juicing on something. They're just, it's beautiful. And then this guy just felt, felt totally out of place. So then I looked, I said, What's, What are you looking at? And he showed me he, he, he unraveled his process card. So he was trying to listen to what she was saying and trying to figure out how to append it to his IBM software development process. Mm. And he couldn't, there was no communication happening. So I realized he was doing that. And so I stopped everything. And I took his, I said, Becky, come on, we'll start all over again. And I took his card and I wrote the process up on a whiteboard. We actually had whiteboards. That's how modern (laughs) we were uh, on the board, not chalk. And I wrote his process. And then I renamed everything on his card to what it would have been in her editorial process. Mm. And I created a translation document so we could begin to work together. Because, you know. (laughs) He literally
0: can't think outside that framework. You have to.
1: I, built a translation document. It was like, you know, you know, requ- you know know f- requirements gathering or whatever mm-hmm. it would be mm-hmm. in their cart at that time. And I was just like, well, Becky, that's like the creative process where you just brainstorm all the things. When you think about all the ways people, you think about all the ways people read the book reviews. Sometimes they're sitting on a stoop, sometimes they're lying in bed. And we just worked it through and came up with the prototype. But that translation document That's the kind of stuff that I really jonesed on, was just solving a problem about how you got people to work together to unleash the value of this new medium. And it was very different than having been the business head or Martin. It was just on the ground trying to think, how do you take the brilliance of that editor and lock them together with this wonderful new medium and make something interesting?
0: Um, I I, in the interest of time, I don't mean to skip over. And in fact, if you stop me, if there's a great story here, no.
1: But, and I'm sorry, if I'm taking so oh, much time. Oh no, 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 time. no,
0: no. No, listen, we're going exactly the way I want. But um, so after in the late '90s, you're at IXL. Is yep. that how you would say uh-huh. that IXL. It's not Razorfish at the time. No. Okay. It It becomes Rage of Fish later. So what what is IXL and what what did you do there?
1: Well, that was the, um, I ran their media and entertainment practice Uh out of New York. Um, It was, at the time, there were a lot of internet development shops. So consulting firms that would have been like IBM who actually knew how to do Mm -hmm. things. They were basically product development shops to build internet sites. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of them. There were some well-funded roll-ups. IXL, Scient, and Viant were the big ones. Mm -hmm. And, And they were... Many small agencies in all these cities that were doing these things, there were pockets of them all that got rolled up into these big companies. So those were the three. IXL was one, um, and I was building their media practice here in in New York. And so that's
0: where you are through the through the bubble days. Yes, through so the yeah.
1: decline, which is another you know, funny story. I was like our executive retreat in. Uh, Santa Barbara at the Four Seasons and something like, you know, the stock price went from like $38 to $0.38, and I think we all had to pay our way out of the hotel, you know. (laughs) It was like, it's when it busted.
0: (laughs) You know, um, if you could, uh, because I'm trying to collect stories of this, uh, just any memories you have of the bust happening, and, you know, we go from here, you know, there's money running all over the place, there's parties at Sudo and all this stuff, and then one day it's over. So just anything that you remember of that period.
1: Um, you know, I was super burnt out, Mm. you know, and I have my own story of just, like, pretty burnt out.
0: So you were ready for it to end when it ended. Well,
1: I mean, I think we were all partying hard. We were having a good time. We were Mm -hmm. running. Mm -hmm. We were running with all of this. Mm -hmm. There was a lot going on. It was fun. Mm -hmm. So it was sort of the, you know, the the disco days or something. So, um, you know, when I think back, I can't really... You know, I I just have this sense of, um, I mean, it's almost like a depressing feeling, Mm. like something was torn away, like, Mm -hmm. and a tremendous fear Mm -hmm. about what you would do next. I mean, it was a little bit, you know, um, I can't say, I landed, actually, you know, I it, it wasn't too long after that that I mean, what was what what year would that be? And I guess the two, bust, uh, bust. Uh, ninety
0: nine and the the Nasdaq hits its height in March of 2000. 2000. So the tail end of two thousand and into two thousand one is when yeah. the nuclear winter, yeah.
1: And that was it. But the thing is, is you know, then you kind of hit nine eleven. So mm-hmm. the, the the and when you think about New York, there's a proximity between those two things. So what mm-hmm. what I did, there was nothing going on. I applied for a, something called a Knight Fellowship at Stanford, mm-hmm. and I had nothing. I remember I would sit at my desk and was working on my resume and that application, and I had nothing to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that, there weren't any more parties. That's what I remember. So I put all my energy into <laughs> I applied for this thing, like, and I got it, and I actually moved on 9-11, which was very, very strange. So.
0: How, how much was there a sense that, uh, oh, it turns out the Internet was just a fad?
1: You know, look, what was a fad was... You know, I didn't take a flyer with a startup. Uh, I didn't, you know, I wasn't at the sock puppet company. Mm -hmm. I wasn't doing that. I was always sort of doing journalism in some form. I was trying to sustain those brands and experiment with those brands that connected with people on a daily basis. My love of newspapers probably coming from having been in a newspaper. Mm So I was in very much that space. Even though I was at IXL, I was solving problems for publishers. I had Time Inc., the Financial Times, the News Corp. I had big clients. So um, the fact that there was uh, it it couldn't have been over. It was just there's nothing worse in life when between when one thing ends before the next thing presents itself. And there certainly was you know people didn't lose jobs who were you know the New York Times didn't lay people off. I did IXL did. You know, it went belly up pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, when your severance was over, if you got one, you know, uh, you know, in probably a few years later, a lot of people went back to being baristas or whatever the equivalent was. Um, you know, I found my out by getting going back to school and moving mm-hmm. to California. So.
0: <laughs> right. So, um, as you say, you were ready for a break. So, you spent a, a couple years in academia, but you're yeah. also you've moved out to the West Coast at this point. Yeah. yeah. Um So do you go to uh, do you go to overture when it's still overture or once it's in Yahoo? I, it's still
1: overture but it's just been acquired by yahoo okay. so um but the, the 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 little piece there is that in 2000 right before the bust i i had a consulting job mm. is that i was consulting for a company called applied semantics that was in LA that developed adsense mm-hmm. and i was working on publisher sense for them so nothing was going on but my old boss at ixl was working with with these guys who had this thing and I helped them out a little bit, and and so I worked for cash, not equity. That was my other Bezos moment, which was no, uh, no, pr- pr- you know, pre-IPO Google shares. So mm-hmm. I got ten thousand dollars in cash versus ten thousand dollars in equity. I had a choice. Right. So um, the reason why I bring that up is because what we were doing was is I was working on what was called Publisher Sense, and they had Domain Sense, and then they had AdSense for monetization, which became the, Google's monetization engine. And um, when I went to Overture. Uh, I had taught for two years. I a two-year visiting appointment at the Annenberg School. Um, I went to Overture to run product development for Content Match, which was their competitor to AdSense. And, and so, so there was a reason why, you know, when I was leaving, the, it was the perfect job for me because it picked up on this innovation that I was doing. Overture had been deeply intertwined with Google and lost that product. Mm-hmm. I was deeply intertwined with um, Applied Semantics. Right. And then they, uh, they, they, when Google bought them, they pulled out, and Yahoo had to rebuild that platform
0: um so uh, to to be clear then what what that what they're working on is matching based on the content of a site or a given page, yes, um, uh, advertising and things like that that, that are yes. relevant to that context, right? So,
1: so basically, it's machine reading text, um, pulling out keywords. So it's you know uh, what you could do with that technology is sort of great stuff: auto categorization, summarization, and metadata extraction. So you could read through something, you could extract the metadata, and then you could match it to the metadata on an ad, and boom, you would have a story and a contextual ad, a story and a contextual ad.
0: Okay, so this is about 2004, you join Overture, rapidly becomes Yahoo. Yep. Um, so what what is, your, what is your job at Yahoo?
1: Well, I'm, I was at Overture doing Content Match, uh-huh. and then I was like, I don't know about this. They're getting this, they decided to start the media group in L.A., and this is actually a great team of people, so I decided, well, I have all this background in newspapers, let me get out of this monetization stuff and try to go do the news business again, and so uh, turned out that guy named Neil Buddy who had started the Wall Street Journal and had offered me that very first job mm-hmm. And then he'd o- actually when I went to IXL He offered me another job as the head of product for the Wall Street Journal and I mm. turned it down and went to IXL I said, you know three's a charm Neil now that you're gonna run the Yahoo News How about you know if I leave Overture and come on over and work for you? And so we struck a deal and at the time what was changing was social media
2: mm-hmm. and
1: so um, I basically went into Run product for Yahoo News, but with a focus on social media, and what what Yahoo could do with that. And that was the point of which they were built, building a great be- a great bench of some really interesting people to look at. Uh, they had a, you know Brick House, which was um, which was up in Berkeley. They had a lot of experimental labs, stuff that felt very much like the New Houses when I first started. They were really interested in doing things, and we had this. You know, Yahoo News was big. We had to do a lot of products there. I developed local news. I put local news on the front page of Yahoo. Um, did a lot of great projects there. Um, did something called You Witness News, which was sort of user-generated content, video submissions that competed with CNN iReport. Report. So we built a lot of products there. We, you know, we played with, we played with social media, whatever mm-hmm. that was going to be. Well, you know, that's
0: an interesting time um, because this is when like they're purchasing like Flickr and yeah. integrating Flickr, um, you know, people kind of forget because I don't know how successful Yahoo was at it. But at that time, at the birth of Web 2.0, um, Yahoo is kind of in the mix. Um, oh, they're in the mix. Yeah, they're, yeah,
1: yeah. I, I mean, they were doing, I mean, Dana Boyd, mm. all these people were researching them. We were really thinking about what does this mean? What is, you know, there was an intellectual side to it. People were curious about big questions. They were willing to invest in you know, doing things with, 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 with coverage of events. So there was it was only not only the trade craft of running your channel. They were actually interested in the larger problems. There, were, there was a group of some very bright people. I mean, uh, um, you know, uh, CEO of LinkedIn was mm-hmm, there, mm-hmm. and so we purchased Flickr, a number of other things. Um, but what was a little hard at Yahoo at the time is that you know the famous Peter butter, butter Peter peanut butter memo. Things mm-hmm. were very spread very wide. And there was there was a rub between the media group that was f- forming under Lloyd Braun and the search group was uh, under Jeff Weiner, mm-hmm. and there was a lack. There was there was we started competing against ourselves mm. in the company to get to do the cool things versus working together to compete against the market. So I think it became too internally focused. I can think of something like Flickr, and you know there I had Yahoo News and I had the ability to use Flickr in a really interesting ways. And, you know, to meet with Stuart Butterfield and other people, you, you, you go and they wanted to do the same thing. They wanted to make their news site. Mm-hmm. And so it was those things you can't, there's nothing to blame, but I think there were missed opportunities because there wasn't leadership strong enough to say, we have a bunch of assets. We have massive distribution with 40 million people on this news site. You know, we have this great social network and Flickr, like make something together versus giving everybody a chance to build their own enterprise. And Yahoo became too many siloed, Companies doing similar things, I think, uh, really kind of aided from within.
0: I, I recently spoke to um, uh, Gary Flake, who was on the. Oh, I love side. Gary
1: Flake. And
0: he said similar things, but, I, oh. I, not. I, I'm not trying to lead the witness here, but. No, 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 there's, but, there's... but I miss
1: him. I would. I, I remember sitting in a room with Gary Flake, trying to design how we would do local news for Yahoo. It's one of the best conversations, and I think he's just. I love his brain.
0: Yeah. Well, so again... Uh, not, I'm
1: married. There's nothing there. I not, just love not his Not to lead the, lead the
0: witness <laughs> as I lead you, but um, Yahoo famously, uh, even early on, said, we're not a technology company. We're not a technology company. And, and after the bubble bursts, they succeed in rebuilding this business around being a media company. Right. So is that part of the problem that they have is that they never really know what they are and, and at their core what their DNA is?
1: Well, it is slightly schizophrenic when you think of going back to the directory, you know, Mm -hmm. where it came. I think Yahoo had to be a technology company at its scale. If you just think about the technology infrastructure to power that, Mm -hmm. it needed, and it, it could, with technologists, do things that nobody else in media could do. If you had media and technology collaborating and creating together. I think that they skewed more rather than creating products that took unique advantage of creating content products that were dynamic and media driven, just trying to look like a media company. I think, in many ways, you know, uh, not, not to look, to make, to make media brands that would compete with media. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were a distribution channel for mm-hmm. legitimate media, for, for established media brands. They played in that ecosystem well, they fed them revenue. But when you start trying to create your own media brands, mm-hmm. I think that was a problem. I think they were, I, you know, I, I, I think it was a distribution company mm-hmm. and a technology company first. And when I was doing media there, I was, we were, you know, we tried original programming, we created stuff, but. Right,
0: because this is the Semmel era and he comes yeah. from Hollywood and.
1: Right, and actually Lloyd Braun was really, right. you know, they did a food site and they did. You know, we had Kevin, somebody, a reporter who went around the world. And they were fun. They were novelty projects. They felt very much like what I got to do in advance. And what I got to do at the Times, so there were these little skunk work experiments. But they captured too much mind share. You know, you weren't going to be producing shows. Um, but if you look at a guy like Gary, like, you know, he's a guy that I, like I said, is this, I sat in a room with him and we made a product together. That made it to the front page of that portal. Mm-hmm. Um, he helped me understand how I could move that vision that I had through that engineering organization. Mm-hmm. And he probably doesn't even remember me, but it was a very important moment because you had to figure out how to get stuff done. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was th- that was the it was you could use the technology to surface all of this content in so many interesting ways. That was that's how I always saw Yahoo. For me, it was a distribution platform. And you could use the technology to match in and auto, automatically make topic pages. And you can annotate content with different things. So um, I wanted to use technology to do that, to append more metadata to things, to build more interesting taxonomies and ontologies, to help people navigate through existing content in more interesting ways. That was my vision of media. So at, what they did as a company was is, you know, we want to be Aster Random House or something like you know, that. Hearst or something like that, or we mm-hmm. want to be the new york times they they couldn't figure out what they wanted to do, mm-hmm. and I don't think you have a lot of people who actually understand that there's something magic between the two of those. That magic was what I had in my little product group at The Times, which is okay, we need to do something different, so we need to we need to work together and mm-hmm. to figure out what this thing is so
0: um to to bring us to a landing we um, yes. so, <laughs>
1: could be here all day. It's a long story long <laughs> for for the last <laughs>
0: um, decade or so though you you've run the Osdor group, uh-huh. Um, and I heard you describe it as you're, you're sort of a jack of all trades. Um, I, I, I'm sure there's a million different projects that yeah. are that, that were fun, that were interesting, that you've yeah. worked on. Um, but just in a, if you were going to describe a theme of like what you've done, helping media companies over the last decade, um, what what is it that that you're?
1: Well, there, yeah, there's probably uh, the. Th- the, the overarching theme, I think, has been probably staying in a space where I was trying to basically evolve great brands to stay relevant and mm-hmm. to use technology and content in what I consider interesting and right ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and it manifested in probably sort of three business lines that I think are good stories. One is I think I was a uh, a whisper of sort behind uh, a lot of very interesting um media leaders who I got to work with um, in, in publications, from The Nation magazine to Bill Moyers to um, Tina Brown and the launch of the Daily Beast. And so I got to work with some extraordinary journalists. Uh, my best one being was helping launch ProPublica, mm-hmm. uh, which was, you know, to me, to work with people that I said earlier in this talk that throughout everything I've done, I know where te- what technology can do. I understand it. But I think there's such great grace in being a great editorial mind, and I think what's, what's, what's vacant from too much of content today is that kind of strategic thinking. Mm-hmm. Somebody who innately knows how to break a problem down and explain it to people and ask critical questions and know what to assign. These were great journalists, and to bring them to the Internet, to help them launch products, to get their thinking in that space... Was something I was passionate about.
0: ProPublica just announced today, I think, that they're hiring like a dozen new reporters. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: And and I was and when I went to ProPublica, they called me up and they're like, uh, you know, they had a, they had they raised let's say their first tranche of money, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a few million dollars. Mm-hmm. Well, they were like, well, we're ready to spend like most of it to build a website.
0: So what, what, what I did, do we spend it on? <laughs>
1: yeah. Well no, they were like they were ready. I came yeah, in yeah, there with yeah. a big budget. Yeah. And I spent one one hundredth of that. Mm. I gave them a minimum viable product and i told them to take all that money and and invest it into what what is now probably their data ju- journalism desk mm-hmm. which is what they could do to tell stories with in different ways using the internet technology versus worrying about creating a publication and um, very you know it was a very small piece of their history but a very um uh, you know there's mutual great appreciation for i think what i convinced them to do very early on too um, and not to squander that money. And, and so those journalism projects, the other thing I've done, I've done a lot of hazmat work. Mm. Um, I Sometimes I think of myself wearing a, a yellow suit and rubber gloves going into places where people have just been taken. Mm. Uh, there's a lot of money in this business. There's a lot of people who think they know and there are a lot of people who don't have experience in doing it. I'm a craftsperson, you know, I, I feel like I've moved up through a trade guild now and I'm a master craftsman of making some things. And I want them made well and correctly. And you don't need to waste a lot of materials and be profligate if you actually know how to put one thing in front of the other. So that's one thing. And my best engagements are I'm working with somebody on where they want to go strategically and what they need to get there. I think ProPublica would have been one. So Mm -hmm. lots of different brands, um, lots of projects having to do with platforms, lots of projects having to do with partners. Um, I've done a lot of work with agencies and brand newsrooms. And, um, you know, what I like is My life philosophy is teach something and learn something every day, and all I want to do is continue to press into new places where I get exposed to new things and ideas, and in return for the privilege of seeing other people's world, I like to exchange for the experience that I have, which is being a very efficient, smart uh, strategist in what you should do in this space, but also an operating uh, machine that can get you there pretty efficiently.
0: Well, I, I promised you um, to stay away from the uh, uh where's, where's media going <laughs> sort of stuff. but let me end with something adjacent, a question adjacent. Um, I'm thinking of our, our friend Rafat Ali has, uh-huh. has thoughts along these lines. Um, my question would be, in this age of, of silos of you know Facebook and Snapchat and content and is there room for a successful independent media, um, publication in this world of the silos? Can you, can you create a company today that'll still be around 20 years from now and still be independent?
1: Well, I always say the best thing about being asked about the future is nobody ever checks whether you're right. So that's why there've been, you know, a cottage industry of pontificating about what mm-hmm. the future will be. Um, I believe so because I just, you know, I boil it down on the crucible to the fact that one very, very smart editor can figure out things that other people can't figure out because they have that gift. Mm -hmm. I think Rafat in many ways is that he's found a space and he's super serving it. I think it's less about, I I think the issue more is is not everybody can be the New York Times and we shouldn't be a bunch of lemmings and the New York Times can't even afford to be what the New York Times was anymore. So uh, I think you really need to look at it in terms of underserved audiences and entrepreneurial opportunities to create media uh, products that actually work for them. And, in, and, and that space is infinite, it's just not sexy. Mm. Uh, people need to know about things. We need to know every day. And there are a lot of successful B2B projects now that out there that have existed that are very suitable for the BB, uh, pardon me, B2B pro- information products that are easy to be B2C right now. If You think mm-hmm. about things like uh, roll call and congressional quarterly and things mm-hmm. like that. You know their businesses have eroded in terms of subscriptions, but yet that information and data they have it would be more easy to serve to consumers every day, and maybe more relevant than a three thousand story about what's happening in uh, the election and in the world of our president today. And more mm-hmm. into why don't you just follow follow a bill, <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. see where mm-hmm.
1: it goes. Look at look at where your you know look at where your congress you know follow your congressman, see what they do every day. Mm-hmm. I, I think that there's a lot of products that um, that. of the energy today is spent running after the same things, Mm. Um, and the spaces that are most interesting are just not, um, there are real businesses to be built, they're just not, um, nobody's having a big party about it, so um, no, I don't think we need another general news site, no, I don't think uh, people are hyper-targeting now, I'm going to be for the richest of the millennials or the middle Mm. of the millennials. Look, we have a country of underserved people with information and education, and there. there's plenty, plenty of space. But not everybody can be a rock star mm. and get rich doing it. Mm-hmm. It's a, goes back to shoe leather journalism. Um, just back in ancient history, I have a, I'll end with this, which is, you know, there was some, something called the California Job Box, which was a newspaper kit. And if you lived out on the frontier in the old days. You could, you you know, you maybe you you moved to Montana and you wanted to be a rancher, or maybe you weren't so good a rancher, so maybe you wanted to get, uh, you wanted to start a newspaper, so you'd save up your, you know, you'd send off the Sears catalog and you'd get this box to become a printer for hmm. all the stuff that you needed, and so you'd set it up and you you know, you'd go around and you talk to people and you start writing stories and, you know, you you'd set something up and you start serving a community with information and you'd start at some point, you know. I always ask when I think about this story, what came first, the ad or the article? Mm -hmm. I don't know what came first, but I know that somebody ordered that box and provided information in a community. created the
0: Bozeman bugle. Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) And I think that that's one of the saddest things about the internet is it's sort of, um, it's middling everything away from local communities. I mean, you know, you used to have Bozo the Clown was in every city or Mm -hmm. there was always somebody. You could have a a truly local version of it because you couldn't get the, the national version um, and I think that local, local, it has a brilliant future. Mm-hmm. I think national brands like Patch and stuff trying right. to be like global local doesn't really work. It's 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 a ground up thing. I believe in ground up stuff. It's uh-huh. just not a big business.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so you can there's still room for it, but just don't expect to have a, a New York Times style operation or size newsroom or something like okay. that.
1: This is a country that's built on small businesses. Mm-hmm. Media is either a large conglomerate that's genericized and, and and is like that, or there's plenty of room for small businesses. Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, if anything, that's what I'd like to do, is have the same sense that, um, you know, a kid someplace can put up a website and people can start coming to it. He can still place AdSense ads on it. He mm-hmm. can make a YouTube. I mean, if you look at all the YouTube celebrities right. that have come out of places. So I think there's a vibrant community of storytelling out there. I think what's gotten wrong is is this notion that if you work in internet media you're going to get rich and it's going to be that a you know an entry-level reporter job is you know there's a lot of ways to make thirty five thousand dollars a year you just have to choose which way you want to get there right you know
0: (laughs) well listen i actually think that that's a uh, a bright and hopeful way to end. That's a, so uh, whether it, it, it proves out or not, that that's a I think a hopeful vision. So Elizabeth Oster, thanks for um, coming on the show and sharing that vision mm-hmm. and, and your story. It was great.
1: Thanks for having me. It was a real pleasure, really. I uh, it's it's fun to think about these things and I hope there's some uh, I, I, I hope there's some lessons learned for people. minutes. So.